Welcome, everyone, to the Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. And joining me is someone who will lean over to you during opening weekend of The Dark Knight and say, she's Talia al Ghul in Marion Cotillard's first scene. It's the ruiner of plots, the spoiler Pete. Hello, Pete. I am the ill intent. Daredevil, episode 113, the season finale of season one, self-titled episode, Daredevil is brought to you by Somerville Department Stores, proudly serving America for over 75 years, longer than the Batman. When you need to acquire the package, stop on by and be sure to check for our new tailor, Melvin Potter. Order in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Our teaser begins with soulful music at a funeral. Slightest bit of a fake out, Matt, given some of the appearance of our mourners. I almost thought we were going to be getting Battling Jack's funeral. I very much agree, whether it's the music choice or... Just something about the look of that scene early on. It really does come across as perhaps in the past. Uh, but, hey, if you if you have a, uh, a little twist for us early on, it's all good. Interesting that we, uh, that we both had the same thought that we weren't quite sure uh, when we were. But sure enough, there we are at Ben's funeral. A funeral Father, for a friend. Father Lantham's presence makes it clear we're in the present as the lyrics talk about many rivers to cross, but I can't seem to find my way over. We see Karen and Matt, and uh, the lyrics move here to stumbling along the white cliffs of Dover. We see poor Doris in a wheelchair there crying, which helps us know that she's in a moment of lucidity to attend her late husband's funeral. And uh, as loneliness won't leave me alone, the artist croons, we see Ellison and his assistant attending the funeral. But some more close-ups of Matt with such lyrics as, it's such a drag to be on your own. And uh, back to Karen, my woman left me. Um, Really get at the vibe of this scene as we see the coffin lowered and go to the title card and that shot of the casket being lowered uh quite good i've never i've never seen the camera placed inside uh the hole into which the casket will be placed and uh certainly a rather uh you know uh drumming sense of finality as you said uh we head into the title card one last time for the season and the title card title sequence, uh, including um, the notation that this is directed by showrunner and uh, guy of uh, Spartacus fame once upon a time, uh, none other than Stephen DeKnight. We pick up for the remainder of the episode right where we left off at the funeral as Karen moves from Matt's side to Mrs. Yurick's and introduces herself. And uh, Doris knows all 
about Karen said that Ben talked about her all the time and, you know, that uh, they never got around to having children. Something always came up. But had they, that he would have loved to have a daughter just like her. But it's guilt-stricken Karen, and guilt is very big in, in this first act, Matt, who uh, believes it is her fault that Ben is in a casket before them. Uh, and of course, uh, her, her guilt is assuaged by Mrs. Yurick's words. He died doing what he wanted to do, reporting on things. Um, and uh, she adds that she's taken care of by, by a policy that he took out. Now, I kind of went back and forth during this scene saying, okay, odds that she's lucid for this funeral, and we're kind of getting things tied up nicely with a bow. Here's the flip side. None of that. And it would have been awful. And it would have taken away from the thrust of the scene, which is about saying goodbye to the dead and the living continuing to go on and live life. Um, so if, you know, if, if I, as the person who normally is complaining about Hand of the Writer, uh, if any of you out there were, were prepared for that, I mean, you're not going to find it here just because it's too awful to consider the other options. Just in terms of a dramatic presentation, it would be unacceptable to have her out of it or to go back to the 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 dramatic conceit of her repeating things because her memory has kind of skipped back to to you know to a to a starting point. It's a scene that works. It's a scene that that that, that wraps up this character and her husband all together and and it, it's it's touching and i think there's almost a certain sense of uh, relief on the audience's part ah uh, she was able to see her husband's funeral and kind of experience it you know in in the moment experience it in reality and and that's a sad thing but a good thing father lantham winds over by matt's side ask him how he's holding up and of course matt says like a good catholic boy that bad huh <laughs> certainly the uh, the opportunity taken there for uh, father lantham to again reflect on his own his own profession and faith and calling and matt is convinced that ben is dead because of him that he was a good man and he's gone because he hasn't stopped what's happening to this city but just as doris assuaged karen here uh, Father Lantham is assuaging uh, Matt. says, you can't put that on yourself, Matthew. You've done everything you can and a lot you probably shouldn't have. And certainly a reminder there, uh, despite Father Lantham's words, that, that Matt feels there's, there's plenty to do. And uh, in the next scene, as we go to the, uh, to the law office there, Kind of a suddenly weird connecting of the dots, which, again, I think that I, I I think that they don't always know as a Netflix production how much time is someone taking in between episodes. So you kind of want to do the standard exposition to keep people in the loop, but do you need to? You know, it's a handful of days since I saw the last episode, so I can connect the dots between Fisk and Ellison easily. Um, so a slightly weird start to that scene. Yeah, I mean, not having gone over to them at the funeral or anything like that, it's it's certainly necessary. Karen is on about how he just stood there like he was Ben's friend. Um, but Matt, and, and here's where it's necessary, uh, 
you know, brings up that, well, Ben said he didn't have any proof that it was Ellison and it was something we talked about in our sidebar segment of the previous uh, episode. So there's a little showing of, you know, what they have at this point. Not so much, I felt, unnecessary exposition. But we move from that to further guilt between the two of them and Matt takes credit for this, that it's his fault, all of this with Foggy. Foggy, who did not show at the funeral because he uh, was summoned away or left a message, uh, kind of made it sound like it wasn't important for him to be there. At least that's what Karen feels. It's presented nicely in a way where presumably they both know the reason um, or, or they know more than us, but we're only getting so much. So it's a bit of a mystery to us. That's always kind of fun writing, frankly, if you ask me, where where characters aren't hiding things from each other, but they're kind of hiding things from the audience. Um, there is, uh, however, uh, let's not forget Matt's promise that everyone will get what's coming to them along with Wilson Fisk. Right. But Karen is worried she can't sleep. So the metaphorical guilt and the very real physical guilt uh them not knowing also what she's done to James Wesley to Fisk in his apartment, uh, consumed by something he's reading. He is actually, uh, snuck upon by Vanessa who was calling him, but he's been looking at numbers here that he was, uh, preparing to transfer to have Wesley move her out of the city. And as he's reviewing these, he's um, making it clear that he's not asking her to uh, leave anymore, but that he's got to run these numbers by Leland just to be sure. Pete, I must admit, I completely misread the subtext in this scene, subtext, which is explained in the next scene. I, I looked at Fisk as that proverbial boss who's able to to give grand plans and and in some rare cases actually you know genuine and appropriate grand plans but who doesn't know how to do this day-to-day stuff so i just kind of read it as he's just like the numbers what i don't know kind of where money comes from and goes to where's my guy to do this you know wesley could do it on the sly leland is the money i, I gotta figure it out and it's i don't know if well i know you weren't in that boat Pete, because you were getting uh, pencil pencil written uh, draft scripts back in uh, back in two thousand uh, early two thousand fourteen for this episode, but I suspect many people watching the episode had a similar thing of like, there's Fisk kind of overwhelmed with with the day to day. Aha! Let's you know let's throw a rock at the boss who doesn't know actually how to do what we what we schlubs do, and we're about to find out he can actually read a Excel spreadsheet pretty well. So when we meet at the garage with Leland, who is giving us the necessary background here that Senator Cherry has cleared the last of their zoning issues, albeit for an extra 10%. But the bright side is that now they'll be able to build whatever they want on their properties. Um, The issue of replacing Gao's 
heroin money uh, comes up and Leland warns that they might have some off-the-books cash flow issues down the road. But Gao is described to Fisk as in the wind and he attempts to shift some blame there, we knowing that he was in cahoots with her on the poisoning at the benefit that uh, maybe she's not the ally we thought. And here Fisk reveals that he asked Wesley to transfer funds uh, the night before he was found dead. And Leland is taken aback. He's, you know, I thought financials were my job. And that's why Fisk says, well, now I want you to have a look at these irregularities at my account. So it's a really well-constructed scene apart from the awkwardness of having to get out some of this exposition. To be honest, I actually didn't read it much as the boring kind of exposition, if you will. I mean, they're, they're doing a quick update. Hey, the thing with Senator Cherry, that happened. You know, it's kind of a quick business meeting here. Yes, it's updating things for the audience, but um, I just love this notion that you need to replace the heroin trade to, to allow for off-the-books money. I mean, I guess that's what nefarious people do, but just this notion of, you know, swap out the heroin trade for whatever. Who's going to buy stuff illegally? Is it guns? Is it, you know, cocaine? Is it, you know, as we saw in the first episode, is it flesh? Um, but just kind of like, you need this to run your to run your operation here. Um, and I love Leland's response here when he's asked to take a look at the numbers, and his response is, yes, it's, it's odd. It's odd all the time to keep the yep. SEC away, which, Pete, isn't this what we just expect out of these sons of gun people where, you know, regulators are trying to keep up and it's, you know, oh, well, I did a this and I did a that. And it's just throw paperwork at them. And again, kind of this this slight plucking of the populist uh, string where this is what those fat cats do all the time. You facetiously mentioned me receiving uh, pencil uh, written scripts in early 2014, but let's not forget how informed these scripts are by the 99 1% battle in the biggest city in the world. I mean, yes, and, and I don't, I don't know how much the comics are are enforced by that. Obviously, the notion of Kingpin as both, you know, Lex Luthor and uh, a physical presence as well is is from the comics uh by lex Luthor, i mean you know the businessman and end right. of it um but yeah i mean this is very much a a you know <laughs> occupy wall street wet dream in a certain sense you know this this whole season yeah and uh as he's handing over the um the financials here, Leland hand, Leland's hand is shaking, which is, oh, it's cold. And then, well, why are you sweating? And he finally comes with it. I figured you would figure it out sooner or later. And uh, denies, of course, as he had nothing to do with it, his involvement with killing Wesley. But that it was he and Gao at the benefit. She's gone. Leland's stealing from... Uh, Fisk, he is pretty upset, which makes it all the more of a misdirect where once he comes out with this 
and says, yeah, well, now I'm leaving with half of your net worth. Um, you almost, Matt, almost for a minute believe based on D'Onofrio's physical body language and his acting that he might just might go along with this. It is such an, an interesting and amazing acting choice on D'Onofrio's part to never be afraid to play Fisk as the scared dog in moments, never in a whole scene, but he's willing to play this guy as three-dimensional, as flawed, as, as out of his element momentarily. And I agree, Pete, in that moment, it appears that he might just get away with this. But I think in the back of your head, though, we've spent all these episodes with Fisk and we know that he's a ticking time bomb. We saw it at the end of last week's episode where it's this elegant, respectful, gentlemanly speech. And then he just turns into a rage. And, um, you know, in addition to Leland taking all the money, hey, go ahead and go do this bad thing. Because Leland has always danced on the edge of a sword for the entire time that we've seen him in the series. So because he does that, he has his, uh, you know, his his kicker lined up. Leland has Detective Hoffman, who he has to check in with every 24 hours or else Hoffman goes to the FBI. So certainly, Pete, a foolproof plan. Right. And uh, Fisk initially says he's not worried about uh, Hoffman, that he's a frightened little worm. But Leland tells him that 10 million buys a lot of courage. I found it slightly unbelievable once uh, Fisk does decide to get physical. He punched Leland once for a man of his age. That would have been the end of it. But it allows him to get the stun gun in and then ultimately get thrown down uh, a shaft. Um, I agree with what you're saying, but here's the... The devils, perhaps the devils of Hell's Kitchens, is 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 um, flip side here. Here, here, here's the devil's advocate. Maybe in that first punch, Fisk isn't punching out of "now I will kill you" kind of kind of energy level. It's just kind of like it, 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 it's it's he's striking out, but not striking to hit and striking to hurt. He's just hitting in a rage or hitting in that in that. I don't know, that, that beginning tumult of emotion, but um, a fair point nonetheless, probably more likely that he, Fisk, the character, hit him super hard and the writer just said, nope, because it's stun gun time first. And Fisk tells Francis, who he's also beaten down, but not to death just yet, to sweep the city to find Hoffman and put a bullet in his head. We're in Fogwell's gym where a Creole Murdoch poster still hangs on the wall. And Matt Murdoch is on the speed bag. Amazing to think that maybe Steve Rogers in some other gym in the same city is doing the same thing. <laughs> I guess, thank goodness, question mark, that the TV end and the movie end are kind of kept separate, at least thus far. So... I guess we'll never know. We'll just kind of know it in our hearts. Foggy uh, shows up as Matt continues to pound on the bag. And you know, almost got the sense that he was so into what he was doing that he didn't pick it up with his super senses. 
But Foggy tells him that he's known about his outlet for some time. He didn't say anything because he thought it had something to do with his dad, but now he knows better. Matt reveals that he attempted to get close to Ellison, but was unable. He's going to try a little bit later, and Foggy asks him if he wants to talk about his anger. To wit, Matt replies, you're not my priest, who you might have met if you showed up at Ben's funeral. <laughs> um. I like that little inclusion there of going to visit Ellison but hasn't spoken to him yet. It's um it is an effortless way to be leading the audience towards the conclusion that that we're you know we already are are mostly committed to that Ellison is the Fisk plant in the uh, in the newspaper office. Um but the fact that it's done so effortlessly, you know, it's not like I bet it was him. It's not more of that. It's just I was going to go talk to the guy to find out and, you know, and nothing yet. So it kind of works both ways. And it's a, uh, it's a nice bit. Oh, writing. I just nodded. <laughs> I, I saw that. <laughs> but, uh, foggy explains that he was on his way to the service and Marcy called and, uh, that she has been helping to copy files at Lamin and Zach on the quiet. Uh, dealing with Fisk and Owsley of Silver and Brent, the Wall Street uh, holdings firm. And uh, Matt is further incensed. He says that Ben is dead. Uh, now you're doing the same type of thing with your ex here, that he has to stop this before um, they are killed. It really is such an interesting little and unexpected and and unnecessary in the grand scheme of things story arc which is given to marcy um but it really does add such depth to the series because she's been so memorable in the few number of episodes that she's been in um it's just great to kind of see you know to to see that she's been slipping them these documents and that she's working behind the scenes and really does have a sense as i said last time of justice with a capital j and um, fits nicely into this idea that, that Foggy is pushing, that they must trust in the law. And, uh, you know, part of the dichotomy of the series, do you take matters into your own hands or do you trust the system as it is? And Marcy is committed to the good of the system. Foggy reminds Matt that the last time he went after Fisk, he found him more than half dead. So like three quarters dead. And if Fisk doesn't kill Matt... He may just kill Fisk, which would probably have the same effect on someone as Catholic as he is. <laughs> nice to see the uh, the uh, the drumbeat again of the, the the Catholicism that the show has been playing with. Uh, and Pete, as I referenced earlier, Foggy says that uh, they must trust in the law. We need to take yep. him down. To which Matt says, "What, Pete? We? Well." Foggy tells him that uh, they need to find a way back, and Matt tells him that they can't, that the only way is if they can find a way to move forward. Sometimes you just gotta, you gotta move on. You can't go back. 
They meet up with Brett Mahoney at the 15th precinct outside, fittingly, because we know things might be watched. There are a number of cops that move past them during this scene, only enhancing that feeling. But uh, Sergeant Mahoney tells him that things are bad enough since uh, the explosion at the um, the warehouse that uh, the last thing he needs is to be seen chumming it up with the enemy. It's uh, it's great that they've had this character of Brett Mahoney, uh, somebody who, frankly, I would have thought was um, not destined for much screen time after the pilot. Um but it's great that he's had this through line as well, uh, particularly in light of last week's episode where uh, he's starting to see the see the faith as preached by uh, by the devil of Hell's Kitchen. And uh, here he is again kind of you know referring to that conversation, uh, reinforcing the fact that he is a good guy, uh, perhaps one of the one of the few uh, in the 15th precinct. And uh, Pete with that. They overhear a cop walking by. They do. Uh, this, of course, after we get the requisite in-joke about the cigars and his mom every time he's seen and uh, Foggy is there. But uh, the background about uh, Matt and Foggy working with Yurik and Matt listens to several cops talking who get a phone call that uh, Owsley has Hoffman stashed and they tell the person on the phone, they will find that little rat. It's nice by the way, Pete, that that police officer finishes the conversation perfectly before shutting the door. Otherwise we wouldn't have heard the whole thing. Yeah. And Brett reminds us that uh, if you ever see Serpico, honest cops are usually the ones that get shot in the face. I like that there was no bullet uh, with Mahoney's name on it in this uh, in this episode and in this season. Once Matt and Foggy depart Brett, Matt explains that he had heard the cop get into the vehicle, that they are uh, looking for uh, Hoffman, and this was the same cop he had a run-in when uh, he was caught the night of the bombings. Back at the office, uh, Foggy is lamenting that, uh, you know, cold cuts and cheeses uh, could have been his life, that he could have had his own deli and an apron with his name on it. Pete, between this scene and the previous one, it's both this sense of, hey, they're back together again, and also, hey, this is the way it is in the comics. Uh, outside the police station there, we have... Matt using his superpowers and Foggy in on the know and and you know they're working together and then here the three of them are at the law office pursuing truth and justice and the legal way and all of that and it really is a sense of you know they've had their arc and now they're all back together and, and all is well in an episode that's going to have um, an interesting shape to it in terms of when things get solved. It is, and that they're pouring over the information that Marcy, the unofficial, you know, fourth member of this team now, has provided them about um, Silver and Brent's real estate holdings, and this is why you need the we're all back together text of this scene to not make it we're slogging it out over financial holding information. <laughs> 
but it's Karen who once again saves the day. She finds that uh, there were 187 holdings spread across New York State one day and only 186 the next, but no change to uh, the balance sheet there. And the address is 53rd and 10th. And I love, love, love the line from Matt there that um, I think somebody probably foggy says, you know, well, maybe he he paid for it with his own money. And Matt says Leland probably used company money and not his own. He's a man of financial privilege. Why use your money when you can use someone else's? And it's just returning to that that populist theme of the series here where these are the people out there to get the little guy. Yeah, and as Matt gets up to go, Foggy warns him here that uh, this is not the way to go, that uh, you're not really going to Brett uh, because his phone might be tapped. But uh, Matt tells him that this is the part where law meets reality. And uh, also just, I mean, a scene that we've seen so many times in other properties, you know, uh alfred saying oh there goes there goes master wayne again um the you know gee whiz where did clark go here uh, but there's superman that kind of moment here where here matt is getting ready to go out again as the mask and uh it really does just feel so right that you know karen shouldn't shouldn't be in on the secret at this point but uh foggy of course as the the best pal knows quite well and and there they are on, on both sides of the the coin of what is right and what is good and what is legal and what is, uh, shall we say, extra legal. We get the Fisk SUV motorcade shot trademark uh, where he answers the phone and says to send the closest team, no survivors, as we get a really cool reflection of him in the interior window looking out at the city. Indeed, and he's lit by that that omnipresent yellow light that the series has continued to use. And Pete, what struck me as he's looking out the window is that he is so alone now. There's no Gao, there's no Leland, there's no Nobu, there's no Wesley. He's just running this thing by himself. There's no Russians, not that they were particularly great masterminds, but this was such a, a, a multi-headed creature uh, a short while ago. Um, 13 episodes for us, I imagine a matter of, uh, of weeks uh, for the characters. And now it's just him at the top of this thing and really no sense that it, that it's tumbling apart. Um, although, you know, we, we certainly suspect that between now and the end of the episode, it will all come crashing down and justice will prevail. We get a, uh, a lackey bringing uh, Marciano's subs back to the, uh, a safe location, which appears to be an abandoned theater. Uh, chicken parm for the one guy. Meatball, of course, for Hoffman before the real butchering starts. Ooh, well done, Pete. Well done. Um, I like the the hard edge to that attack by NYPD officers loyal to Fisk. I mean, there's no... There's no pretense even of let's make this a gunfight. It's just six, eight, ten cops coming in, killing a whole bunch of people. Um, and then then that one cop, the lead cop, pointing the gun at Hoffman as Hoffman. A blood soaked Hoffman. <laughs> indeed. Just it the whole scene 
there's there's something imbued in it that's just this you know i know steven tonight said oh the show's pg-15 i mean this is our violence here even if it's not you know saw and guts and you know kind of that that really hard edge stuff this is our violence here and they also know when not to overdo it that gun at hoffman's uh at goffman's head hoffman's head and we there's this entire fight that he misses because his eyes are shut uh save for the last kick from the the man in the mask and when uh the man in the mask goes to sit down across from him he tells him he has an opportunity that um, he can set things right. If not, he can sit here and play with himself <laughs> until Fisk sends more men to kill him. It's it's, it's solitaire, Pete. Uh, right, which, you know, once the, the tables flip, but I thought it was just such a great line <laughs> beforehand. And we've, we've seen that motif of the cards, so to follow that through, just a, a fine, fine detail to connect and another one again kind of um i don't even think it's it's stretching credulity but in the fine tradition of it's a small world in comic books uh the masked man advises the hoffman go to officer brett mahoney and you know he's a good guy he's not one of fisk's guys um and darn it if mahoney can't set you up with two young honest lawyers which you know all of a sudden you kind of see this clear shoot for the story to operate through and it's just it's just cooking with gas at this point so the upshot is that we get uh hoffman to walk back into the the 15th precinct and right up to the arresting officer tell him he needs to make a statement still soaked in blood um other people apparently not noticing this at all and uh, cut to Foggy and Matt and Karen across from several prosecutors. Foggy explaining that their client uh, is willing to uh, be placed under protective custody uh, and waive all considerations for immunity. Uh, they're asked in exchange for what? And Matt takes over. He says for nothing. Detective Hoffman regrets his involvement in Wilson Fisk's criminal enterprise and seeks only to unburden himself in the eyes of God and the state of New York. Wonderful little bit there that I suspect was scripted, but nonetheless uh, acted by the actor where uh, Hoffman starts to give a statement and says, you know, he's taken money from, and then he stops himself because you don't say it, but now you can say it. And um, from these two scenes, setting up his, uh, his uh, walking into the police station and then sharing what he has to say uh we cut to the operatic montage of arrests pete yes uh having named these names to the prosecutors it's now merely uh the business of scooping them up the first is our old buddy turk barrett who is collared by a bunch of fbi uh then we get um uh, dirty mustache cop is how I refer to him. <laughs> I know you have a different name. Uh, indeed, I say the the rather squat cop. Nice choice that these and the the future arrests that we're about to discuss are done in slow motion. I think if this was a uh, 
a broadcast episode where you might have more consideration for time. This might be done more quick cut montage, but it really is a moment. You know, Turk Barrett, who's a scumbag, but I think that we have loved in the course of this season. Um, it's nice to give these baddies one last curtain call to really see the to see justice happening swiftly. However, to see it at a slow pace, it's a nice flourish at the midpoint of the episode. And, uh, of course, we uh, we have more baddies to go. Certainly did not expect to see them raid the bulletin. But when you see Ellison, you're like, here it comes. And when they walk right by him and instead arrest his assistant, it's uh, an earned moment for sure. Then we see uh, Landman uh, arrested in the parking garage. As Marcy, who only appears once in this episode, doesn't even get a line of dialogue, but her look says it all. It says one word, Pete, justice. In addition to, I'll see you in season two as Foggy's helping me find work. And it all crescendos so wonderfully with Senator Cherry being led out of his offices and uh, questioned, we we drop the music as reporters begin to ask him questions and then uh, transition to the TV, which Vanessa is watching and Fisk is barking orders over the phone about making the arrangements. Wait for my call. And with the arrest of Senator Cherry there, you see that that kind of wall of TV coverage. Pete, minor, minor points off for not not hitting a number of the uh, uh, of the uh, TV affiliates, the TV news affiliates. Heck, it, why not ABC? It's part of the Disney family. You know, get some Ernie Anastas in there with his. Well, we it, you can just look that one up on YouTube, kids. But um, the point being, though, even though perhaps it's not authentically, you know, channels uh, two, four, five, seven, nine, and eleven covering this, it still is this idea of this media blanket that fisk um counted on so much a couple of episodes ago at the end of the day a they can sniff which way the wind is going and b there's a better story out there than the payoff that you're getting something big is happening so now it's whether it's journalism with the best intentions or or um whether it's i don't know just uh opportunistic journalism it's it's time it's time for journalism of some sort so go 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 but Fisk has to have this moment with Vanessa explains that they're coming for him now. There's nothing that they can do to keep this from happening, but he needs her to do something. And just as he's about to tell her, Pete, that's when, of course, they cut to the FBI pulling up to the building, getting out, go, 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 run, run, run. And then they cut back to him saying, do you understand Darn it, Pete, the way they edited it, we don't know what it is yet. Right. Well, I would argue, and we will talk, we still might not know what it is. But uh, one more thing, and he produces a ring, and as the uh, FBI is telling him he's being arrested for racketeering, he tells Vanessa, um, you are my heart, you're everything, and he is led away. On the steps of his apartment building, reporters ask him about the Ranskohoff brothers. Is he responsible for the bombing? Um, A woman asks uh, 
now that Senator Cherry has said that he'll be exonerated by the facts, do you feel the same? And another female reporter asks, what about your better tomorrow? Well, Pete, despite that zing there, I had to, I had to think back to, uh, to him giving her the ring. You know, I know you've got a pretty good story popping the question, giving the ring to your special lady friend. Uh, I have a similar, similar story, but darn it. Is there anything more special than, 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 you know, giving your gal that ring, proposing marriage at a time when you actually can't say the words because you're being led away by the FBI for being the head of just a giant racketeering ring. I'm a little choked up, Pete. It really is just such a special romantic moment. It's also a very practical move because she can now not testify against him. Are they met? Well, well, they're not married though. No, but, uh, the ring being a contract towards marriage. Yeah. I would, I would, having done zero research on this topic, I would accept it. If the show says that's a thing next season, um, I would be interested to know the actual legality of it. I mean, listen, as we know from our intrepid attorneys at Nelson and Murdoch, there is a way around every law. (laughs) This is true. So here we are, Pete, where we always hoped that we would end up. Justice has come to Hell's Kitchen. But a quick look at the at the timer there tells you the 30 minutes of the finale remain. And I love that there's there's this inauthenticity at the midpoint of the episode. We know that there's this time left. We know that questions questions are out there. What remains? What will call daredevil into action one more time because it it feels like the story is over but it feels like it's not earned right this show is called daredevil and not man in the mask (laughs) we have uh our partners at nelson and murdoch plus karen celebrating um they are the ones that made it happen the three of them and uh matt's quick to point out and marcy God bless her, says Foggy, and her designer pumps. <laughs> it's a well-deserved thumbs up there to Marcy. You do wonder what their plans might be for her next season. But uh, as, I said, as I said earlier, a nice little um, nice little bit of story for her, despite all the other great her goings on this season. And it's a moment to talk about the ones they've lost from... The unnamed, like a Daniel Fisher, to Elena Cardenas and Ben Urich. And uh, indeed, that too, a nice look back to to where we have been. But we still have more story ahead of us, and we cut to Fisk's FBI motorcade. Yes. And Matt, he is thinking about a certain story from the Bible. And uh, he's flanked by two guards. I will henceforth refer to them as guard to our right who uh, protests Fisk speaking and guard to our left who uh, says let him talk it don't mean nothing but Fisk explains that he's not a religious man reinforcing what we heard before with his uh, tale about his father and the way that that went, trying to prey on the farm. But he's read bits and pieces. It was a curiosity more than faith. But one story about a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho uh, that he heard really struck a note. He was set upon by men of ill intent uh, and left 
at the side of the road dying. First, a priest passed by and moved to the other side of the road to not help him. Then a Levite, which the show feels the need to explain, a religious functionary, did the same. Finally, a Samaritan from Samaria tended to his wounds, applied the oil and the wine, carried him to an inn, and uh, gave all the money that he had uh, for the owner to care for him before he continued on his journey. That he did it simply because the traveler was his neighbor. Uh, he loved his city and all the people in it. And Fisk laments that he always thought he was the Samaritan in the story. That it's funny how even the best of us can be deceived by our true nature. Pete, if things are as they should be, and Vincent D'Onofrio gets an Emmy nomination for his uh, portrayal of Wilson Fisk, this would be the scene with its religious religious flourishes and so forth, and then that just stinger at the end that uh, you know he is he is the the mechanism of ill intent, and um, just a, a yet again such a fantastic performance out of this guy. Right, you know we we have to have. Uh guard to the right say what the hell does this mean (laughs) before it's broken down even further for us that you know i'm not the samaritan i'm not the priest i'm not the levite i am the ill intent who set upon the traveler on a road that he shouldn't have been on and it's like, but wait a minute, we're on a road that oh, you think, oh, <laughs> two trucks pull up in front of the motorcade and over the TV, uh, it's reported that the FBI transport has been attacked. Karen, uh, talks about the idiocy of their celebration and foggy talks about how they better get out before the streets are closed. And Matt says that he's going to go back to his place and make some calls to try to figure out what's happening. Foggy tries to get him not to go, but we all know that this showdown is looming. And um, it's here that uh, as they get closer and closer to the truck, that finally the left cop kills the right cop and uh, the package has been acquired. And that attack scene where, where Fisk's men all in black are, are gunning down the opposition. I was struck there. It's good cops and good FBI people that are mowed down. And something that we discussed in the preview episodes was how police would be treated in this series, given that there are tax considerations coming from the city and state of New York and what's kind of that give and take there. And uh, we had mentioned, you know, certain uh, other productions when you deal with the military, they don't care if it's robots or aliens or whatever, but they want the military portrayed in a not only a professional light, but an accurate light, or perhaps it's the other way around. Um, now's as good a time as any to say kudos to whoever those people are that are at the city and state of New York handing out money to productions done done in those places that you can have a show filled with rotten cops um and and, i mean the whole free speech notion and this is what the story requires and at the end of it justice does come to all those to all those rotten cops and there's good cops in the mix there mahoney being kind of the the shining example of it 
but I, again i was struck in this scene too where you kind of um it you, you kind of separate the bad cops from quote unquote the rest uh in this particular scene and that's not to get involved with other police uh, related issues in the news but in this story it's very clear that there's good guys and bad guys and uh and a shame to see the bad guys taken down so quickly here and fisk tells his assault team as he's loaded into another truck if anyone tries to follow on the ground or the air to take them out quite a quite a statement there that they're prepared for you know one if by land and two if by air and there's probably the implication you know and if uh, the harbor patrol comes after them you know get out the speedboats as well we move from Fisk on the run to Melvin Potter, strange armor tailor, who uh, hasn't had enough time, Matt, to get all of the uh, package he's prepared for uh, the man in the mask through the process, but tells him that the black parts will uh, provide the most protection. The red might deflect the knife depending on an angle might not pete why don't we put a pin in what he might mean uh, by that for when we discuss theories later on because i certainly have a few um i like though that they tease i mean look we know what this scene is all about right as soon as he's there we know what it's about even if you haven't seen the the album art avatar picture thing on netflix which at this point you should have you know what this is about for goodness sake and i like that the box opens Matt, of course, feels it because he can't see it. Um, and then, you know, the box is about to be closed. You're saying, yes, suit time. And then then Melvin's hand comes because he has a question. Right. Betsy, is she going to be safe now from Mr. Fisk? And Matt goes back to the promise that he intends to keep it. And with that, just wonderful, wonderful choice of shots here from uh, episode director and showrunner Stephen Denight. We cut to, though not named yet, I think we can say it, cut to Daredevil lit from behind, surveying mm-hmm. his city. So you don't see much of it, even on a big TV. Um, and then there's just this tight close-up of his face where it's almost, you know, uncovered, of course, where it's almost like, oh, don't, don't even show his neck yet. You just want to have... <laughs> You want to have the character, and at this point, it's all about the tease. It is, and uh, he's listening. He hears uh, things throughout the city. Uh, he hears cops uh, tell one another not to approach um, Fisk uh, as he flees here, that they need backup, and um, they pull him into a, uh, a garage where he changes vehicles into a Somerville department store truck. Um, and it's one of the thugs in there with Fisk that, uh, the daredevil is finally able to identify that the package is in route, prepare for extraction. And then, um, Vanessa is put on the walkie talkie there. Fisk tells her that he knows this has been a difficult chapter in their lives, but Vanessa says we'll be together. That's all that matters. But it's the setup that Fisk says if he's not there by your side in 20 minutes, he wants her to leave. And she tells him that she's not going to let them take you 
away from me, Wilson. I think we will come to see as fateful words for the next season, Matt. Indeed, and it's it's uh, mirrored by Fisk saying if they are you know kept apart, if she has to leave in twenty minutes, it'll be an inconvenience. Nothing right. will keep us apart, and a shocking notion because. Not for nothing. I mean, it's not going to take spoiler Pete here to tell anybody on first viewing that with uh, maybe 15 minutes left to the episode, uh, Fisk is going down, Daredevil triumphant, end of season, perhaps end of series at the time that they made it. Next time you see him, he's, you know, off doing Defenders stuff. So they're planting some really ambitious seeds here. And it speaks to the flexibility of Marvel television that they didn't know what would come next. And they were certainly very coy. There's, there was never any discussion of season two until there was an announcement for season two. There was never yeah. any, any stated intention for it, which not for nothing, aim low, then you hit a home run and people are, people are impressed. Wisely done. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in our sidebar segment. But uh, we get the driver who says that they're 15 minutes to the drop and uh he catches one of daredevil's batons to his face indeed and it certainly caught me because we hadn't um we hadn't really seen anything of uh, the new billy clubs um yet and then all of a sudden it just looked different but just with the briefest of seconds and with the truck having spilled over pete what are we lighting the the nighttime scene with what kind of light that yellow light that that yellow light almost in this episode used to excess but you know not for nothing if you're selling the the sickly nature of what's going on in the city and if that's been your metaphor all season long you know leave it all in the field here this time and as the daredevil uh is seen on the top of the vehicle he tells fisk that he was right what you told me over the radio that night not everyone deserves a happy ending and it's a nice reveal of the suit proper at this point. Spoiled the teensiest bit by by having seen it before. Um, with that aforementioned album art, I am sure that if we had Jeff Loeb sitting here, first of all, the first thing he would say is, who the hell are you guys and why am I here? Um, but more importantly, he'd say, you know what? You know who wasn't surprised by it? The people who sat and loved this show so much they could not stop watching it Friday. Saturday, Sunday morning, and before that album art flipped over, they had seen it and they were in the know. So fair is fair. I, I certainly give a ton of credit to um, to the idea that the show held this reveal uh, and then gave it to the most uh, voracious of fans. As Fisk, uh, like us, comes to the realization of who is in the armor, the uh, the gunfire erupts from the guard who was armed inside the truck. We get a great stunt where the baton is reflected off the vehicle and uh, into that guard. Fisk is cornered in an alley, which is lit with that yellow so that you can see plastic bags caught in the fence. In what was a little confusing, it almost looked like flame. Now, that certainly is interesting. Um, perhaps it might be there, too, just to sell the presence of the fence, you know, the, the the solid nature of it. But regardless, it's a really interesting space that they have um, Fisk kind of get cornered in. I love that 
and not that the show is in any way making a joke or taking a low blow, but he kind of he kind of takes a look at the fence, and you can just say have him say, "No, I'm not climbing over that." Then he goes to the door, bangs on it, and it's just all doors are shut to him. He really, really is cornered like a dog by Daredevil. And he tells him, I wanted to make this city something better than it is, something beautiful. You took that away from me. You took everything. I'm going to kill you in great symmetry to the previous time they met um, to fight where Matt had said that. And Daredevil here holsters his batons and gives him the very self-same, take your shot. The, the fight that ensues there, and for all the fights that we've seen uh, in the course of, uh, of this uh, season, it, this one is different, just as all the others uh, have been. Fisk is attacking with power, and Daredevil is uh, responding with speed. And somewhat predictably, it seems that uh, Daredevil's doing okay in the beginning, but then, um, then you know, Fisk's uh, starting to take over in terms of the momentum of the fight. And the way that they show Fisk uh, hitting Daredevil, throwing him, it really is believable that Fisk is is human, not, you know, I'll pardon the slight pun here, not inhuman, not robot-powered, not, you know, uh, Asgardian. He is human, but just supremely so, superiorly so, where it's just kind of at that at that upper edge of what a human could do. Now, I don't mean that literally. I mean, the the, the speed that he throws him the way it's done with like wire work and things like that, different stunt effects. It's not, it's not fully human um, or, or, or literally so, but the way it's presented, it's like, yeah, maybe somebody could just, just do that. And to toss daredevil into a dumpster, then to wail on him with some, you know, conveniently available rebarb, um, and just the, the brutality of this fight after their other conflict, which culminates in this wicked body slam that the armor just barely enables Daredevil to, uh, to tolerate. And Fisk tells him that uh, this city doesn't deserve a better tomor- tomorrow. It deserves to drown in its filth. It deserves people like my father people like you and here the suit is put up to the test slow motion style until daredevil grabs um fisk and he tells him this is my city my family and pete the way i read that slow motion hit there uh i kind of read it as amidst all this other stuff uh the the monologuing and the beating uh, the suit is allowing Daredevil to just kind of hear the pattern of hits, to understand the pattern enough for him to kind of make that make that midair hit. And um, with that, Fisk is on the ground, and Daredevil is up, and we we sense the climax is near. There are nice ear uh, pieces on the suit that have little slits on them. That uh, is a pretty good nod to how important his sense of sound is as the character. But, uh, you know, when when Fisk tells him, you think that uh, this is going to change everything, that you think that one man in a silly little costume will uh, make a difference. It's then that he finally knocks uh, Fisk out with a pretty killer uh, flip move there. And uh, Brett shows up and uh, 
um, Daredevil tells him that uh, he told him before he's not the bad guy. And uh, he recognizes uh, Holy S, our 66th and final S word, Matt, in a show about the devil. Hashtag Illuminati. <laughs> By the way, Pete, that, that final hit to take out Fisk, um, the way it's revealed, the way Fisk goes down, rather evocative of a boxing total knockout. Um, and then Mahoney there, Mahoney recognizing that this uh, weirdo before him is the same as the the, the masked man. And um, that moment played for tension, fooling no one, but fun nonetheless, where will he, won't he? And then he radios it in and he's holstering his gun. And um, with that radioing, we're able to cut to Francis uh, because, well, news is getting out that Fisk is down. Vanessa is seen by the helicopter. She pulls out the ring from her pocket and she puts it on rather symbolically before Francis ushers her in and away. And Pete, as that helicopter takes off, she looks cold and alone. And I would argue that we cannot, we can not feel sorry for her in this moment. There's been so much sympathy placed towards her as a character, but in so many ways, her story arc has been one of, of um, spiraling down. And, and here she is happily landing on the villainous side and upset that things didn't work out. And I would argue that from, from our, our most generous feelings when she entered the story, we now just uh, you know, look at her as a, a villainess. She's made her choices. And as Brett handcuffs Fisk... Uh, he asks Daredevil what he's supposed to call him uh, when he files his report, to which uh, he flips up the fire escape and away. And we cut rather effectively to Karen reading the front page of the bulletin, Daredevil, uh, which uh, also uh, calls out on the front page there that the Daredevil collars Fisk uh, mystery figure brings end to daring escape with a one of those uh artist renderings of <laughs> the daredevil and the looking, surve- looking rather like the cover of one of those comic books yes and the surveillance photo in black it's uh, it's always a question in in a comic book property how do you get to the suit how do you get to the name right um Sometimes the S really does stand for super and it's not some convoluted thing. Um, but here it's just, I, I mean, it's fun that they're holding it to the last moments of the first season. Um, and logical enough, you know, it's good enough. And the fact that it's, you know, the the splashy newspaper headline and not, you know, well, I shall call you the daredevil. It's, it, it, it all works. It's all part of that, you know, New York tabloid uh, one-upsmanship and, um, a fun and an earned moment. Got to have some fun with it too. Foggy being in the know, he, th- he thinks that it sounds like uh, he's going to jump the snake river Canyon on his rocket cycle. And <laughs> while Karen agrees, it's a goofy moniker. Um, she thinks that it grows on you. Uh, and it's certainly better than the devil of hell's kitchen. And look at that armor, Matt. That's a serious upgrade. But Foggy <laughs> thinks that the horns are just a bit much. <laughs> I dare say the horns um, 
perhaps the best part of the outfit in terms of transferring the comic book uh you know the comic book silhouette or the comic book outfit to to these three dimensions they were part of the worst uh the portion of the costume in the film and here they've just nailed it and um while i don't love the suit it's it's incredibly fitting and um who knows what upgrades might come in the future very evocative of Captain America's outfit in the first Avengers movie. I would guess that they took a lot of the uh, template from that um, in terms of the fit, in terms of the way the headpiece goes on in a similar uh, way, even to the uh, the ear flaps, if you would uh, call them there. But as uh, Foggy is affixing the Nelson and Murdoch uh, sign on the building, you know, Nelson and Murdoch avocados at law. <laughs> um, we, we get our group back together finally in name the way it's always meant to be. And it's, uh, it too is a rather predictable, but a, a well-earned and a fun moment. Um, it's that opportunity for, for the three of them to be victorious. I like that we're outside. We don't need to be back in the law office uh, set. Let's be on the actual streets of Manhattan here. Uh, Foggy mentions that he's off to help Marcy get a new job since, you know, most of the Landman and Zach people are now, uh, in, in, in jail. Under and indictment. Under indictment. Indictment, jail. It, it, Pete, it's all fancy lawyer and talk. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm a man of the people. I, 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 I ring the populist bell and uh, let's just have justice please can't there just be justice well the timeline is laid out here rather effectively whether they were prepared to go straight to daredevil's possible involvement in other defender shows before that mini series or wait for defenders but that fisk will take about a year or more to get his court date for a case of this magnitude, but Matt uh, brings the comfort when he says that he's where he belongs. And it's, um, it's something that Marvel has dealt with before, specifically the, the Hulk movie. Do you do a sequel or do you just pick up later on? And, you know, the ending of the Ed Norton Hulk movie could go either way to suit either, either storyline. So I suspect that was the situation here of, Okay, what ideas do you have for season two? How could we take things from there? And then worse comes to worse, you just pick up with something Fisk-related the next time you have Daredevil show up in one of these Defenders properties. Yeah, and uh, to get Matt and Karen here um, as we put a bow on their involvement, that uh, though they've put um, Fisk away, it won't bring back um, you know, any of the characters that they've lost, uh, it won't change what they've been through here. And, um, Matt has picked up something in Karen's voice that he thought would change and it hasn't. And he tells her that, uh, they can move forward together. And I like here that as she's reflecting on those words, the camera is slowly pushing in, uh, as a close up and she actually looks into the camera. And I think that it's, it really is an opportunity for us to be looking into her soul. Um, I personally read it as not only her guilt over uh, having killed Wesley and any 
potential, um, you know, revenge that might occur over that and fear and whatnot. But just there's more to this character and her background that I think troubles her. And, um, you know, I guess we will find out in the future what prevents her from moving forward. Appropriately, the um, second to last shot that we get is of a large white suited prison clad uh, jumpsuit Fisk who uh, with screaming in the prison around him sits down and has a nice long look at a wall reminiscent of the one in his childhood apartment, the rabbit in the snowstorm. Indeed. And a nice bit of, uh, of minor justice there. And uh, Stephen tonight, again, returning to um, the, the, the close up of a character here, Fisk, Fisk scare, is staring into the camera too. Of course, he's meant to be staring at that wall, but staring also at us and uh, looming large indeed. And then we cut to a rooftop with Daredevil in the suit. There are screams. He backs up and then does the classic jump with the batons in the air there as he goes down. See you in season two. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, let's start with the kingpin himself, Wilson Fisk. I like that we got through season one of this show and he was not referred to as kingpin. There was so much humanizing that went with this character. We've talked about it before. They gave the villain all the traditional tropes reserved for the hero. Falling in love, the fear of protecting her. Uh, everything else and to be parted at the end here and what you normally see, you know, the hero says we can't be together because uh, you need to be protected. Um, really, really effective stuff. Can't wait for more of Fisk living on the inside. Pete, in my, in my palatial spoiler free existence, I was convinced 1000% that Fisk was going to die. And I was saying to myself, but Daredevil doesn't kill. Are we going to da, 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 da. Um, the fact that he is left alive at the end, I think is on the one hand, really interesting because that means season two will be familiar territory, but, and, and we could save further pro, you know, prognostication for season two in our, in our wrap up podcast, by the way, dear listeners will be releasing, uh, this upcoming Friday. Um, but I think it I think it does present certain challenges for season two in terms of like, and next time the bad guy will be Fisk, and we're gonna see Fisk with a girlfriend. So I'll take that over, you know, Fisk is dead and we need to reset uh for season two. But uh yeah, some uh some interesting twists and turns there with Fisk making it to the end. Unlike, of course, Pete Leland. Bob Gunton is a wonderful, wonderful presence in anything he does. And just this unctuous, slimy bookkeeper, completely with fear, shaking, sweating. All right. He got a little bit of a physical altercation in and, and used his stun gun. But, uh, you know, Celavi down at the bottom of a, of a shaft there on his face. 
the the world weariness and the unimpressed nature that that Bob Gunton gave Leland for the entire season was just fantastic. He's he's he knows that Fisk has beaten people to death with his bare hands, and he's saying, "Hey, you know what? Worst comes to worst, you do this. I'm a bad guy. You beat me up right now. Just so you know, it all comes crashing down around you. So why don't you just let me take my money and go live my tax free existence? It's just." There's just such a, a a carelessness to him that that is so against type for these bad guys. They're supposed to love their evil enterprises. Yeah, I think that you know he's he's all that and attitude wrapped up in uh, a trench coat. <laughs> Indeed, Pete. Let's talk a little bit about the dirty cops. I like dirty mustache cop the most. Is really reflective of. You know, Blake is dead. He he, easily our filthiest cop, too dirty to live, and that uh, this other cop who was talking about tracking down Hoffman and has had the daredevil on the other end of a gun before gets collared is appropriate and uh, just important to see. Absolutely. Kind of the stand in for all all the bad cops in this episode. Um, But Pete, we see some good cops or rather some good FBI agents in slow motion chasing down our pal, the first real baddie that we ever saw in the series, Turk Barrett. Turk Barrett must have had about seven minutes of footage in this 13 episode run. And he owned every minute he was (laughs) in from telling... uh, not Wesley, uh, the the other Patsy who went down in the in the uh, bowling alley and killed uh, Mr. Prohaska. You know, oh, these guns are good, or my name ain't Turk Barrett. Um, the Turk Barrett guarantee should be on everything Daredevil. <laughs> Pete, next on the list, we thought would be editor Ellison, but instead is his uh, assistant of uh, administrative means. Comely and uh, never speaks really much other than informing Matt Murdock that, uh, or not Matt, rather Ben, that uh, Ellison was at his kid's recital, but they're going to love her in Lockup. Pete, it, it, it's a postmodern character. All her dialogue is off screen. Pete, next let's talk Landman. They're arrested in his in his darn parking garage, man. This is a dirty one percenter. We have seen pressure a man dying of who knows what on the behalf of Roxon Oil. So we don't want to hear for a moment that this guy doesn't deserve it. We know from Marcy's corroboration that they are uh, cooking the books, doing whatever they can for. Um, Silver and Brent and for the Union allies of this world and the Confed Globals. So you get what you get and you don't get upset. Pete, we have uh, a a former New York senator eyeing higher office. And in this show, we have a former, a soon to be former New York senator eyeing an eight by 10 cell in the form of Senator Cherry. I won't try to whitewater. I mean, whitewash this one here uh, gets what he deserves as well. Having squeezed 
Fisk for another 10% on top of everything. You know what? You get greedy. Sometimes the hand gets slapped. But Pete, you know who is greedy only for love and, you know, kind of implicit in, you know, a whole bunch of bad stuff is Vanessa. Wonderful character in the turn that she has taken. And by the time you finish season one and to know that she has made her bed, now she lies in it alone elsewhere. Just a tremendous tour de force, if such a phrase can be used for uh, Aylit Zerur. And, uh, you know, who knew that she was going to own as much of the screen time that she appeared in Matt, I'm going to make a prediction. My first heading into our sidebar segment, but we'll talk a little bit more there. Uh, she will be your baddie at the beginning of season two. Ooh. You're wrong on my approach. My approach the bench. time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. So, Pete, tell me more about her as baddie for season two. Well, that Francis squires her away, that there's this, I need you to listen carefully to me, Vanessa. Can you do this for me? She's clearly been put in charge of something more than I need you to get to the helicopter. And it's a very convenient writing tool in that, okay, we do one season. It was get to the choppa. Now it's get to the choppa and to Switzerland and to come back. And because you are my fiance, maybe there's even a, uh, a wedding in the future here in the jailhouse can't testify against and she can lead his criminal resources outside of jail well pete i'll piggyback off that for a theory that uh, i've had bopping around my head and i think it's such a good one that when when people if it if it comes true i just want to say i have i have read nothing um i don't think there's spoiler stuff out for season two because i doubt work has really worked on it to any great degree they Um, just convened a writing room well there you go um, here's my theory, Pete. If she is the baddie, which would make logical sense, she needs some muscle. And I was thinking, Pete, maybe, maybe, oh, maybe she could hire somebody to really punish Daredevil in season two. That's a effective theory there. I got one for you, Matt. We never saw Betsy. Um, I'm going to make a, a prediction right now. Betsy? Come into season two as uh, Melvin Potter gets more involved with working on the old suit. I completely agree with that. I think it would be welcome in perhaps even the first act or two of season two that as Daredevil slips through the window or the they meet again or whatever, uh, Betsy is revealed. I'm sticking with the idea that Betsy is like a scrawny, tawny little kitten. Or like, you know, just a chubsy-wubsy puppy or something like that. That Um, theory, I'm the one that put the theory forward that it was an animal. (laughs) Really? I have it. It sounds so good in my head. Oh, there Um, you go. I mean, listen, you can can co-opt it, but you were saying it was a woman. This this is very 
clearly to me been uh, been done as an animal, which makes it all the worse for Fisk to threaten it. <laughs> all the worse for Fisk to threaten it, and all the I mean, kind of speaks to the to the the limitations that Potter has. Pete, let's stick with Potter for a second. Do you think? Let's let's put on our writers' room hats here. Oh man, people might like the suit or people might not like the suit. We'll hear back from people, but the season will already be over. Let's write a trap door in there where we can make changes to the suit. Is that Pete? Why Potter says, "Oh, it's not completely done because if people go, oh, it's too red," they go, "Oh, he added more black," or people say it's not red enough, and so on and so forth. Are there changes to the suit in season two? Um, in a fairly substantial way. I wouldn't say in a substantial way, but I think enough that you will note this was introductory suit 1.0. Look what they've done again with Captain America. Okay. They're filming civil war right now. He's had a new suit in every single movie. Why? It's not just the sells action figures. It's the adaptation it's so you know when you're looking at a still that this is in a, a newer film. They change all of their outfits, Iron Man and Thor and, and everything else. So um, it's, it's good marketing. It definitely is. And um, it would be interesting to see what changes they do make because what we saw of it, I certainly dug. I think the helmet is just spot on. Um now, how well is it going to hold up to repeated viewings? I mean, maybe they do just have a version one, and then they're really going to refine it for season two. But time certainly will tell. Pete, any more theories on your end? I don't. I do have a theory that we will ultimately see Daredevil in one of the other Defenders series before the Defenders miniseries. But I really think that's an easy one to throw out there at this point. Well, I have one more to ask you about. Do we get more on Karen's background and some of the some of those things, or or has that been a little bit of a either a misdirect or, or dare say a misread? Um, what's the future for Karen Hold? Well, Ben had looked into it and that he's no longer with us unless it's a flashback situation, which I doubt they're going to go with there. It'll be more of her story either told to someone else or we could see it through her own eyes. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Matt, we had received a very heartfelt message uh, via our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the PH, all one word, from Jorge Mojica. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Jorge. And uh, some of it is written, and then there's a little bit more that you'll hear after I read the first part. But Jorge writes in, love your Daredevil podcast. You guys do such a great job with it. I love everything about it, but I especially enjoy that you guys go in order. I'm blind, and I love that Netflix has description with the show. It really helps to listen to your podcast right after watching an episode. 
Let me play for you the rest of his message. Hey, my dictation stopped uh, working for a minute. It, well, it's easy to be a fan of good stuff. Um, you know, as I said, I'm blind and I have tons of podcasts and I do audio so often. You know, it's just, it's painful to listen to bad audio and uh, there's a lot of bad audio out there. Um, but you guys just, do such a good job. It's, it's, it's great. So, uh, thanks a lot. Jorge, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for taking the time to get in touch with us, uh, both uh, through written and uh, and audio means. We are we are absolutely over the moon that you have enjoyed this first season of the Daredevil podcast. Uh, it's it's certainly has been a wonderful season. Since hearing your message, I uh, I, I was able to check out that uh, descriptive uh, audio track that it has. And Pete, I don't know if you've had a chance to check it out. It's it's definitely a really effective um, alternative to the storytelling there. It's really, really great how they work in the description uh, alongside the dialogue. And um, most importantly, though, just absolutely humbled that uh, that Jorge has found us and is enjoying what we've been doing and uh, that he's been along for the ride uh, for season one of Daredevil. Really means a lot, Jorge. Thank you. With that, Pete, one more reminder to everyone that we'll be back uh, with one more episode this Friday, kind of a season one wrap-up, looking ahead to season two uh, episode. We know not everybody tends to follow us uh, to those, uh, so if this is our last episode until you join us for episode 202 uh, sometime next year, thanks so much. But uh, do stay in touch, and Pete, how can people do that with you on the Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J. Kedelar, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 5,769 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a variety of ways. There's four of them. We are Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with a PH. You can reach out on the Gmail, the .com, and the Twitter. And Pete, there's even more. There is facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek, all one word with the PH, just another point of contact. With that, Pete, I will say thank you once again to all our listeners for having joined us this season. Can't wait to wrap it up this upcoming Friday. And uh, until then, I will say adios one and all and give you, Pete, the final, final word for a new episode of Daredevil for season one. Not everyone deserves a happy ending.